I want to ask you this morning, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We've taken the last several weeks and we have been focused on the book of Jonah. We've been studying the book of Jonah. We've really learned two things. We've learned first to see ourselves in the book of Jonah, to see ourselves in the rebellion of Jonah and in the repentance of Jonah. And we've also learned to see Jesus in Jonah. Jesus said that Jonah was a sign, was a picture of what, of what he would do. And we've seen that as well. Today, we'll take just a little bit of a different direction. We'll look in Jonah chapter 3. And my hope today, my prayer, is that together we might rediscover the mercy of God. One of the greatest things we can talk about, this will be a good news message today, we can talk about the mercy of God. So let's just jump right in, Jonah chapter 3, but I want to read, and it's probably on the same page here, this is such a brief book, Uh, but let me actually start in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, verse 1 and 2, and that'll set the scene for Jonah 3, we'll skip to that, Uh, but the book begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because their evil has come up before me. And so if you've been here a few weeks, you know that God sent Jonah, one of his prophets, a prophet that had been ministering in Israel, God sent him to Nineveh. Well, Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. God knew that Nineveh, that those people were evil people, and Jonah knew that they were evil people. So while God said go east to Nineveh, Jonah decided to go west and get as far away as he possibly could, and then you know what happens next. Ends up on a boat, ends up in a storm, ends up in a fish. And then he prays this prayer, three days in the fish, and that brings us to Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Well, almost. The fish spits Jonah up. We don't want to leave that part out. Pretty important. And that brings us to Jonah 3.1. Let's just start reading. Bible says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I think that's important just to stop right there and notice those two words, second time. Sometimes God calls us to do something and we, like Jonah, refuse to do it. God says go one way, we go another way. And then we wonder, we find ourselves a year later or 10 years later, and we wonder, whatever happened to that call that God had on my life? Well, it's still there. It may look a little different. The path may be different. Of course, there are consequences for rebellion and sin. But you notice, Jonah chapter 3, verse 1, the mission for Jonah hasn't changed. And so the word from the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. Go to the, to the city of Nineveh. And, and maybe for some people, that's really all you need to hear this morning. Because you know there's, there's a call on your life and you have ignored it, you have run from it, you have rebelled against it, but you're reminded by God's word today that the call is still there. Go and do the things that God has called you uh, to, to do. Verse 2, he says, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I, that I tell you. And so Jonah got up and went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. So Jonah set out on the first day of his walk uh, in the city and he proclaimed, look at the message, this is what he preached. He proclaimed, in 40 days, 
Nineveh will be demolished. Now, that's a pretty short message. You know, pastors don't like to preach short messages. You knew that already. Uh, but this is a short message, seven words in English. In the Hebrew, it's actually only five words. It, um, it doesn't really seem to be, be a very good message. There are no illustrations. There's not a poem. There aren't three points. There's nothing to write down. But, but that's his message. And we're going to come back to that. It's important to, to see that. I have it underlined in my Bible. That's the message that God told Jonah to preach. Look at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and they dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. So Jonah preached, a revival breaks out. Now, why did a revival break out? There, there doesn't seem to be anything in Jonah's simple message that would lead so many people to have such a dramatic change in their life. Well, the reason revival broke out is because God stirred the hearts of the people. That's really what I want you to see. You, you can't look at Jonah's message and say, wow, what a message. Of course everybody repented. No, Jonah just stood up and, and he gave the plain, simple truth. It was God who stirred the hearts of the people so that they ultimately could accept God's mercy. You know, this morning, about seven men gathered right here uh, in front of where I'm standing. And we prayed together that in the sanctuary service, in uh, the celebration service we have here, the summit service uh, that's, uh, that's watching us right now, those people at home, those people on television, that God would stir your heart. You know, there's some things that a preacher can do, and I can give you some information, and I can read the passage, and I can explain it, but only God can stir your heart. Would you pray a prayer right now? Lord, may my heart be stirred like their hearts were stirred so that I can experience a revival like they experienced a revival. Look at verse 6. It says, when word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, put on sackcloth, and sat in ashes. That's how they would demonstrate their repentance, the sorrow they had for their sins. And... And he did this. This is amazing. It, it, I think we said this a couple of weeks ago. The people of Nineveh were about as wicked a people as have ever lived. They were notorious for their violence. We even have uh, today literature written by the Ninevites, written by these people about 750 BC that record their history. And they claimed of themselves, they bragged about the fact that they were such evil people. Uh, one of the things that they mention in some of those writings is that they had figured out a way to take people that they had captured because they had overrun some city. They would take men and women and children and they had figured out a way to skin them alive. You've heard that phrase before, skin alive. They had figured out how to do that and keep those people alive. And then they would bury them in the sand up to their heads, pull their tongues out and drive a stake through their tongue into the ground. These were wicked people. And there are other things that frankly are just too PG-13 to, to share in a message. These people did absolutely terrible things. Now, why, why would God send Nineveh to preach to people who were so evil and so wicked? Well, this is a story of, of extremes. So you see the extreme evil of the Ninevites so that in a moment we can see the extreme mercy of God. 
You really can't appreciate how wonderful God's mercy is until you see it respond to this extreme, dark, terrible evil of the, of the Ninevites. And it's just beautiful how, how God puts all of this together. Well, let's continue to read verse 7. It says, then he issued a decree in Nineveh. This is from the king. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. Uh, they must not eat or drink. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? This is interesting. This is what the king says. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So the whole the whole bunch of them, they repent. Even the animals repent. This was a revival. So what does God do? Well, you see it there in verse 10, last verse in this chapter. God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways. He saw all that they did, but it, it says specifically God saw that they had turned, that they had repented, that they had changed. They turned from their evil ways. So God relented from the disaster that he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. Now that verse is, uh, is packed with some theological questions, I know. Uh, people ask a lot of questions about this verse. Uh, I, I've read pretty widely about this, and I'd love to talk about it if we had time, but we don't. Uh, so this week on our pastor's show, I'm going to ask Mark, our associate pastor, just to explain to you how the immutable sovereign God changed his mind. And so if you're curious about that, pastor's show on Wednesday, Mark will give you all the, all the details. Now, what I want you to see, because I just want to be a little more uh, simple-minded about this, here's, the, here's what that, that last verse tells us. If you give God a half a chance... He will overwhelm you with mercy. If you'll just give God a chance. And I'm going to show you at the end of the message why this is so. But you give God a half a chance. And you will be surprised at the mercy uh, that, he will, that he will show to you. So I want, us to, I want us to study the mercy of God. And I want us to study it from this chapter. I want to do an investigation, if you will, of chapter 3. I want to ask three questions. Three pretty difficult questions. Uh, I'm going to ask it of chapter 3, and then we're going to look and see if we can find the answer. And I think as, as the answers to these three questions come together, we will be, like the Ninevites, overwhelmed with the mercy of God. So question number one, was God serious about destroying the Ninevites? Was God really serious? Was this just a hollow threat? God said he would destroy the Ninevites. But he didn't destroy the Ninevites, so did, did God change his mind? And, and we can talk about a lot of the theology there, but, but just on the surface, can we take God's threat seriously? When God said he would destroy them, did he mean it? Well, the only way I know to answer that question is to look at God's track record. If you want to know about somebody, look at their fruit, look at what they produce, look at what they have always produced, look at their track record. And so we ask the question, did God mean it when he said he would destroy the Ninevites? Well, let's just walk through our Bible. The first passage that comes to my mind is in Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, God promised that he would bring a flood because of the wickedness of the people upon the earth, that he would bring a flood and he would wipe everybody out. 
Let me just read to you those verses, Genesis 6, 12, and 13. God saw how corrupt the earth was, for every creature had corrupted its way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature, for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them, therefore I am going to destroy them. That's what God said. But what did God do? Well, God did exactly what he said he would do. Now, it's a longer passage, but let me just, I, I just want you to, 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 to experience or, or to see the, the fullness of, of how God fulfilled the promise that he gave, the threat that he made. Genesis 7, 21, every creature perished. Those that crawl on the earth, birds, livestock, wildlife, and those that, that swarm on the earth, as well as all mankind, everything with the breath of the spirit of life in its nostrils, everything on dry land died. He wiped out every living thing that was on the face of the earth from, from mankind to livestock, to creatures that crawl, to the birds of the sky. They were wiped off the earth. Only Noah was left and those that were with him on the ark. So when God says, the sin is so great that he's going to bring destruction. Is he serious? Well, his track record in Genesis chapter 6 and 7 says he's serious, right? Now, we can look at a lot of other places. What about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? You may know that story, not quite as well known as the, as the flood, but, but, but Sodom and Gomorrah, their wickedness rose up to heaven. God sent some angels. There was a little bit of a negotiation that happened with Abraham, uh, but eventually... Sodom was destroyed because of its wickedness. God said, if you're wicked, I'll destroy you. They were wicked. God said, I'll destroy Sodom, and he, and he did. Uh, the story of the Amalekites, the Amalekites. Uh, in Exodus chapter 17, verse 14, this may not be familiar to you, but listen. It says, the Lord said to Moses, write this down on a scroll as a reminder. I mean, I like that. God said, Moses, I'm about to say something. I want you to write it down because I don't want people to forget this. He says, recite it to Joshua. And here it is. I will completely blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. So the Amalekites had, they had raided and they had uh, attacked the Israelites during the Exodus. And so God said, that's it. There is coming a day when I will wipe the Amalekites off the face of the earth. Now, what happened? Well, it was a few years later, and I think that's why God said, write it down. I want people to, to see that when I make a threat, I follow through. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 7. Saul struck down the Amalekites, and they were gone. So was God serious when he said that he would destroy uh, the Ninevites because of their sin? Listen, he was serious. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, don't fear those that kill the body, but fear those who are able to kill the soul. Uh, fear him who is able to destroy, Jesus said, both body and soul in hell. He was, he was serious. Now, you, you might be thinking, Pastor, you said we were going to talk about God's mercy. This doesn't sound like mercy. Well, to understand, to appreciate God's mercy, you first have to understand his justice. To, to see how wonderful his forgiveness is, his mercy, you have to see what his standard is, what his justice, what his judgment is. So let me tell you, God hates sin. Not just a little bit, not just sometimes, not just some sins, but God hates all sin. He hates sin in part 
Because of who he is. God is holy and righteous and pure. God has never sinned, never been tempted to sin, never almost sinned, never kind of sinned. And and because, because of who he is, God hates sin. And then also God hates sin for what sin does to us. God knows that when we sin, there are consequences. There are temporal consequences. In this life, we suffer because of sin. There are eternal consequences. He, he hates sin because he knows what sin does to us. You can never play with sin and not get burned. You can trick yourself. You can fool yourself. You can deceive yourself. But every sin, big or small, public or private, every sin brings a consequence. And so God hates sin for, for both of those reasons. It's hard for us to comprehend just how much God hates sin because we don't hate sin, right? We sort of like sin. We, we, you know, it's hard to say that in a church. You know, we want to say, oh, we all hate sin, but, but, but we sure embrace a lot of it, don't we? So because we don't hate sin, it's hard for us to understand how God does. But the Bible says that God is just, that God hates sin, and he says that every sin must be punished. And he says the punishment for sin, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, that sin leads to death. And he says he will never, he will never overlook a sin. There will never be an exception. No sin will, will fail to be, to be punished, and every sin deserves death. Now, if you, if you really wonder how serious God is about this, just look to the cross, right? So Jesus, who had never sinned himself, the son of God, God himself, but Jesus took on the guilt of our sins and God looked down upon Jesus and God allowed Jesus to die on the cross. It says in the Old Testament, God killed him on the cross. If God were ever going to make an exception and overlook a sin, that's when he would do it. But he, was, he is so just. He is such the perfect judge that even then, he said, every sin uh, must, must be paid for. And so we see here uh, that God was serious God was serious when he said he would destroy uh, the, the, the Ninevites, that, that this sentence of death had been pronounced over them. So that's the, that's the answer to the first question. Was, was God serious? Yes, yes. Now, that takes us to the second question. We're going to get a little closer to mercy here. The second question then is where is the mercy and where's the mercy in Jonah's message? Do you remember Jonah's message? It's back up in verse... Four, as I said, seven words in the English. It's, it's the last part of verse four, if you're looking at it with me. In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Now, where is the mercy in those seven words? In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. I'm telling you, you can see mercy two different ways in those words. First of all, you can see mercy in the fact that there was a warning. If there had been no mercy, think about this. If God were, were, were just determined uh, to, to show them no mercy, to not give them a chance to repent, if there had been no mercy, there would have been no warning. Why did God warn them? Because there was mercy available. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll 
be counseling with somebody and I'll hear them say, you know, I could never be forgiven. I have sinned too much, too long, too badly. I feel so much shame. I feel so much guilt. It is hopeless. God will never let me back in. And so what do you say to a person like that? I say, you're, you're wrong. The guilt and the shame that you're experiencing, that's God stirring your heart. That is a warning from heaven. And when there is a warning, there is mercy. God wouldn't warn you. He wouldn't stir your heart if he weren't offering you mercy. If he wasn't saying, come back to me, I will accept you and forgive you and clean you up. Come to me. There's mercy. So we see the fact that in the warning, there's mercy. If there had been no mercy, there would have been no message from, from Jonah. But we also see the mercy in another way in this, in this seven-word sermon. We see it in the 40 days. Have you wondered, uh, have you wondered today when we, when we read this and you saw that the message was in 40 days, God will destroy Nineveh? Why 40 days? Why, why not four days or four minutes or, or four seconds? Why, why didn't he say, right now, here it comes? Why did he say 40 days? He said 40 days because God is a patient God and God is merciful. You see, see he, he was giving them an opportunity to repent. He was giving them an opportunity to turn. The reason he said 40 days is because, hey, six weeks, we got to work this out. Six weeks, you've got a chance to come to me. That 40 days, that is a picture of the mercy and the patience of God. It's one of the most beautiful phrases in all the Bible, in 40 days. Don't you see that God didn't have to say in 40 days? I mean, if you'd have been God, if I'd have been God, we wouldn't have given them 40 days. We wouldn't have given them four-tenths of a second. We would have destroyed those people. But in 40 days is a testimony to God's mercy. One of my favorite Bible words, and it's probably not in your Bible unless you have a King James Bible. Uh, not, not a lot of people read that version anymore, great version. But it uses a word that's not in our, our modern versions, long-suffering. Have you heard that word before? That God is long-suffering. Now, in our more modern Bibles, they put patience. And that's good. That speaks to more people. People understand what patience is. But I still love that, that word long-suffering because it paints a picture Paints a picture of God that he waits and suffers a long time for us to, re to return to him and to show us, to show us mercy. I, I thought of a couple of parables, a couple of things that Jesus said that, uh, that fit right with this idea of the mercy of God is seen in the, in the 40 days. One of them you're familiar with, the story of the prodigal son. I think we referred to it last week, and, I, and I'm, I think I'm going to get to it again before this message is over, but, but there's something about that story. Do you know the story? It, it's a made-up story. It's a parable that Jesus is giving to teach a truth. And he says, a father had two sons. One son rebelled against the father, said, Father, I want my inheritance right now. Though you're not dead, I wish you were dead. Give me my inheritance. He didn't want to live under the constraints of the father's uh, rules, and so he took his money and he left. Now, why, why did the father give him the money? You know, I think when I read scripture, the oddest things stand out to me sometimes. And, and when I read that parable, I think, well, why did the father give him the money? I, I, I think 
my girls, if they came and said, listen, we want our inheritance, first thing I'd say is, no, listen, we've already spent it. <laughs> you, know, they, you know, if I got some change in my pocket, but, but I, you know, if my girls are rebelling against me and they come and they say, listen, dad, you know, go ahead and write me a $10,000 check and I want to take my money and go. You know, I, no way, no way. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pay for you to go. So why did the father who stands for God in this, in this parable, why did he ever give the money? I'll tell you why he gave the money. The patience of God. Here's this son. He's already rebelling against his father. Even before he leaves, he's rebelling in his heart. He hadn't left, but he's, he's already rebelling. And the father said, okay, listen, I'm going to give you some money, and this money represents some time. It represents your 40 days. And you take this money, and you go do what you're going to do, and I'm going to wait. And my prayer is that you'll come back, that you'll come back. That money was the, was the patience of God. I think we can see that even clearer in another parable, uh, maybe one that you're less familiar with, but, but, but another parable also in the book of Luke. And, and this is short. Let me just read the whole thing to you. Luke 13, verse 6 says, Jesus told this parable, a man had a fig tree that uh, was planted in his vineyard. He came looking for fruit on it and found none. So a man owns a farm, a vineyard, and there's some fruit trees. And, and in this case, he goes into fig tree. He goes to, to collect the figs, no figs, no figs. For three years, he had waited for this tree to make figs. And still, third year, no figs. So the, the passage goes on. He came and looked for fruit, as I said, and found none. And he told the vineyard worker, listen, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I haven't found any. So cut it down. That's what the owner said. Cut it down. It's good for nothing. No fruit. Cut it down. Why should it even waste the soil? But the vineyard worker, the farmer, here's how he replied. Sir, Leave it this year also until I dig around it, I fertilize it, and perhaps it will produce fruit next year. But if not, we will cut it down. Now, what is that a picture of? That's a picture of the patience of God. That's a picture of someone who's, who's rebelled against God, who's not serving God, who's not living for God. And God says, one more year. One more year. That's the patience, the beautiful mercy and patience of God. One more year. We see that with the prodigal son, the father said, I'm going to give you a chance. We, we, we see here with this, uh, with this fig tree, one more year. We, we see here in, in Jonah chapter 3, 40 more days. God is patient because God desires to give us his mercy. And isn't it wonderful? That he doesn't just strike us down at the first sin. Isn't it wonderful that he's not going to strike you down today at the first sin, but that he waits. Now, there's a time limit on all three of these examples I've given you. There's a time limit, but God is patient and he waits because he desires to give us mercy. And that brings us to question three. Why was God merciful to the people of Nineveh? And this is the hardest question, but it's the best question. Why did he do this? They were so wicked. None of us would have chosen to give them any mercy. We wouldn't have given them another chance. Why did God give them mercy? Why was God merciful? Well, you've got to understand, first of all, it wasn't out of obligation. God, God was not obligated to give mercy. 
There's no rule that God has to follow. There's no judge. There's no Supreme Court that's uh, telling him he has to do this or that. God can do whatever he wants to do. So there was no obligation for him to show mercy. There was no precedent for it. It's not like, well, that's what the last God did, so I need to be merciful too. No precedent. And there was no need for it. It wasn't as if God needed to forgive them in order to be a good God, in order to be a righteous God. No, God was good and God was righteous and he would have still been good and he would have still been righteous if he would have just blown them away. So there was no need for him to do this. And then another thing you notice is that they didn't deserve it. They didn't deserve it. It's, you, you can't say, well, he forgave them. He showed them mercy because they somehow deserved it. That wasn't true either. So why was God merciful to these people? Because that's just who he is. There's really no better explanation. I thought of, you know, how can I best say that to you today? I don't think there's a better way. It's just who he is. I mean, John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his, gave his only son for us. It's just who he is. God is merciful. He's just, every sin will be punished. But at the same time, he's merciful. And we ought to just be overwhelmed by that. The mercy, the mercy of God. People tend to think that mercy is God's reward for people who deserve it. I, I hear that in counseling all the time. I hear that, I hear even Christians say that. Well, I'm working to deserve it. I'm gonna do this and do this, and, and I know I've sinned badly, but I'm, I'm working to deserve it. We think that mercy is the reward for those people who've worked hard for it. Sometimes, and I've even heard pastors say this, I've even heard preachers say this, we tend to believe that mercy is God meeting us halfway. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Listen, you do your part, God will meet you halfway. I'm so thankful that God doesn't meet me halfway because I'd never make it to halfway. If that's God's standard, there's no hope for me or for you. Mercy is not God meeting us halfway. I, I know that we tend to think that mercy is, is us, us doing our penance and serving our time and then God shows us forgiveness. I, I, I've, I've asked people why they don't come to church and, and I've heard people say, well, well, pastor, I'm gonna come back, but you don't understand. I've had, some, I've had some junk in my life. I've done some things and I just, it just wouldn't be right for me to come back now, but soon I'll come back. They think, you know, if I could just serve a little time, if I could just pay a little penance, then God will show me mercy. That's, that's not the mercy of God. People tend to think that they could never receive God's mercy because their sin is too great. People believe often that mercy for them, the mercy of God would be a long shot. And I think that's even what the, what the king of the, of the Ninevites thought. Look back at verse nine. Verse nine, well, I'm gonna back up into verse eight. Uh, it says they call out earnestly to God. Each, each must turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. And then in verse nine, the king says, who knows? Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. I think the king thought, you know, it's a long shot, but maybe God will be merciful. Listen, you and I know something about God he didn't know. It's not a long shot because that's who God is. I am. I want to take a few minutes, and I'll just tell you what my goal is. I'm not, I'm not trying to be sneaky. 
But I just want to take a few minutes and I, I want to impress you with God's mercy. Uh, just give me a few minutes and, and, my, and my hope is that everybody will say at the end of this in your heart, wow, I didn't know God's mercy was so great. Can I do that? First, let me tell you that God's mercy is, is the basis of, of his forgiveness. The basis is not you deserving it. Does that make sense? The mercy of God is always undeserved. And it is the desire of God to show you his mercy, to bring you forgiveness that you don't deserve because not that you deserve it or even that you're trying to deserve it, but because that's who he is. And he delights in that. Exodus 18, 23. He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? God says, do you think that I like destroying people, judging people? He says, do I take any pleasure in the death of the wicked? This is the declaration of the Lord. Instead, don't I take pleasure when he turns from his ways and he, and he lives. God is so much a God of mercy that what brings delight to the Lord is when he gets to show mercy. So he shares three parables right in a row in Luke chapter 15. The last one's the prodigal son. I told you we'd come back to that. But, but, but let me mention the first two first. The first parable, the first story he tells in Luke chapter 15 is the story of a, of a shepherd who has sheep, 100 sheep. He's taking care of the sheep. He loses one sheep. He counts on one, two, three, four, five, 99. I had 100. And so as the story goes, the shepherd leaves the 99 and then he goes and he searches for the one. He searches until he finds the one. And when he finds the one, he brings it back. And they celebrate because there were 99 that didn't leave. No, they celebrate because one has been found. They throw a party. We have found the sheep, the one sheep. That's what gets the shepherd excited. Now, at the end of the, end of the parable, Jesus gives some commentary. And here it is, Luke 15, 7. He says, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance, who don't need repentance. I know sometimes in church, it's easy to sit there and, and think everybody around me, I mean, they've got their stuff together. I mean, they're here and they ought to be here. But I know inside of me, I know that there's sin. I know inside of me, I've lost my temper this week. I've said things I shouldn't have said. I have looked at pornography. I have said things that were untrue. I, 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 have, I have rebelled against the command of the Lord. And you sit there and, and you think of your sin. And then you think, you know, that's me, not the people around me. That's me. Now, now two problems with that. We, we come to the conclusion that, you know, then I can't, God doesn't want me to do anything. So two problems with that. First of all, the people around you aren't nearly as put together as you think, okay? Not, not nearly as, 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 as doing as well as you think. But here's the more important thing. This passage says that God delights more in one person repenting so that he can give that person mercy. That means more to him than 99 other people who don't need any mercy. 
Now, the truth is the people next to you, they need it probably worse than you do, okay? But even if that weren't the case, even if everybody around you, they need no mercy in their life, God would be more excited about you turning to him than all the 99 people not needing to turn to him. That's who God is. That's what delights the Lord. You know, when you meet somebody brand new and... Um, and one of the things you want to ask is, well, what, what, do you, what, do you, what are your hobbies? What do you do? What do you enjoy? Because you know, if you want to get to know somebody, you want to know what they delight in. What, what, what really makes their day? What gets them excited? Well, here it says that what the Lord delights in is showing mercy. If he could show you some mercy today, he would delight in that. There's another parable, I won't read it, but it uh, follows that parable about a, a woman who has some coins and she loses just one. It's the same story, she, she sweeps her house, she finds the one coin she's, she, has, uh, she has lost and she celebrates. And, and then Jesus makes basically the same comment. He says that I celebrate when just one person will repent. What does God want to do today? Does he want to stomp you down? Does he want to get you for your sins? Does he want to crush you today? No, what delights the Lord is to give you mercy. That's, that's his heart. And then, of course, the story of the, of the prodigal son, the lost son. I've already told you the son goes away. The father gives him some money. And he, he you know, runs out of money because he lives with no constraint. And he finally just it comes to his senses just when his life is completely falling apart. And he, and he goes back to the father. He goes back to the father. So what's the father going to do? I mean, you've heard this story, a great story. Uh, but the father, you know, forgives him. Uh, the father was waiting for him to come back uh, because uh, the father was anxious to show him mercy. But I just want to, I, I just want you to hear the announcement the father makes. Luke 15, 22, the father told his servants, quick, quick. He's getting their attention. He's excited. The father's excited. Quick, bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Then bring the fatted calf and slaughter it and let's celebrate with a feast. Because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he is found. You see, can you see the excitement that the father had? Quick, quick, somebody go get the robe. Quick, you know, don't, don't, don't slack on this. Go get it. This is exciting. Let's have a celebration. That's a picture of the delight God has, the desire God has to give mercy to somebody who returned. I remember a counseling. It wasn't just an appointment. It was a whole really season of counseling a couple uh, in the very first church that I was senior pastor of in rural Mississippi. And the couple, I, I can see them right now, um, a young couple, maybe 35. The, the man was a successful entrepreneur, uh, businessman. I think the wife uh, was a stay-at-home mom. They had a couple of young children. And uh, the wife had committed uh, some sin. It, it wasn't sexual sin. That's where everybody's mind goes. It was something else. But it was grave. It was bad. And so she had left. She committed the sin, actually more than once, and so she left home, got a hotel or something, I don't remember, and she wouldn't come back home. She wouldn't, she just wouldn't. She was so ashamed, everybody knew it was a public kind of thing. Uh, she was reluctant to go back. She didn't want to face the music. 
She didn't want to explain to her husband and to others why she did what she did. She, she didn't want to work to make up for the embarrassment. She didn't want to, you know, pay the, pay the price. And she just didn't want to come back. I talked to her over and over and over. I'm not going back, Pastor. I'm not going back. She would cry. She'd weep. She wanted to go back. She missed her children. She missed her husband. She said, I can't go back. Now, I was also talking to her husband. And I talked to him several times in the middle of this. And he was hurt. He was hurt by what she did. He was embarrassed by what she did. But he wanted her to come back. He wanted more than anything for her to come back. His love surpassed her guilt. Does that make sense? He didn't want her to come back and explain it. He didn't want want her to come back and pay for it. He didn't want her to come back so he could punish her in some way. He just wanted her to come back. And he would say, Pastor, please, I'm begging you to beg her. Please, I want her to come back. I want her to come back. I remember talking to her and she she said, Pastor, this is just, this is the, the, you know, the bottom line. Here's why I'm not going back. And she said, I, I just don't deserve. I don't deserve it. I don't deserve to go and live in that house and be the mom to those kids. I don't deserve to be that man's wife. I don't deserve to be a part of the church or in the community. I don't deserve it. So I'm not going back. And so I can remember telling her, you know what? You're right. You don't deserve it. You don't deserve to be the mom. You don't deserve to be the wife. You don't, you don't deserve any of it. But this isn't a matter of what you deserve. Your husband loves you so much. Deserve is not even a part of the equation. That's not even a part of the conversation. It's not about what you deserve. It's about the love that your children and your, and your husband have for you. You've got to go back, not based on deserved, but based on love and mercy. So the, the rest of the story, uh, she didn't go back. About a month later, she disappeared and just left. Uh, to my knowledge, and I've been gone a long time, but uh, I don't know that anybody, even to this day, she just, just left, went somewhere. She just left. And what a tragedy that, that she refused to receive the mercy and the love that her husband and the community were offering her. She just abandoned it. But here's why that's important. People do that with the Lord every single day. I can't go back. I've sinned too long, too badly. I can't go back. And we think that us going back somehow depends on what we deserve. And we fail to understand that all it depends upon is the mercy of God. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. I read it a moment ago. I want to read it again. I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who need no repentance. Just with your head bowed and eyes closed, I do want to say this. There there was a trigger for this mercy in the story. This could be a whole other sermon. I won't let it be, but... uh, but there's a trigger. It says they called out earnestly to God. They turned from their evil ways. And they asked for the mercy. 
The trigger in your life is to turn from your sins, call out to God, and ask for mercy. And let today be the beginning, the new beginning of the rest of your life, not because you deserve it, but because that's who God is, and that's what he delights in doing. Father in heaven, I am so thankful for the mercy of God because I've witnessed it and I've experienced it, and I've experienced it when I have, when I have been so undeserving of it. And I pray that people all across this campus today, those watching online and television, that they will be overwhelmed with the mercy of God and that they will cry out for it and have their lives changed today because of that mercy. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.